perfect. Thank you. All right. Morning, everybody. Um, I hope this doesn't feel too walled off here. I just need a space for my computer notes. But um, some of you are, are new. Last week, I had a few new faces. And then also this week, even some more new faces, which is great. So uh, quickly, if you don't mind, I'd love to just go around and just hear first names to kind of help us feel a little bit more um, comfortable and, and acquainted with each other. So Hey, Tim. Hey, Tim. Hey. <laughs> Good to have you all here this morning. Thanks for being with us. Um, as you might recall, if you were here last week, we talked a little bit about the kingdom of God and that being the context in which we are rooting and locating all of which we are discussing. So this concept of forgiveness, what does it look like being rooted in, in the, the kingdom of God, and contrasting that with any other narrative that uh, vies for our attention any other narrative that seeks to tell us what is true, seeks to define reality for us, both in, on a small scale as well, well as a, a larger scale. So we had spent some time just becoming more aware of even some of those narratives that are operating within our lives that would then inform the way we think about forgiveness because everything that we experience is filtered through those, those narratives. And so we spent a little bit of time just sort of rooting it in that context of the narrative of the kingdom of God and saying this is the truest form of reality. And so I want to extend that a little bit more today and look at um, what are some of the things that we believe as the people of God that again helped help to ground and root this idea of forgiveness. And so we're just going to do a little bit of, of theological groundwork here just to say these are things that we claim to be true. These are things that we have named to be true, and therefore we want to orient our lives around them. And I've heard it said that um, you only believe what you do, you only believe what you obey. And so I emphasize that to say the point is not merely to say that we cognitively assent to these concepts and say, yeah, that sounds good, yes, I've read that before, okay. But what does it look like to not only say, I believe this is true, and therefore I will respond? with my mind, with my spirit, with my body. Therefore, I will orient my life around these truths. And that is what I mean by uh, the idea of believing these things, that these are uh, beliefs, again, around which we orient our lives. So we're going to uh, go through some of them. I assume none of them are new to you, and that's, that's a good thing. But hopefully we can begin to think about some of these concepts uh, in a bit of a fresh way as they relate to specifically the concept of forgiveness. So first, we believe that God is good and will not call us to something that is not good. Simple, but really, really important to consider. So right now I'm teaching a biblical ethics course as Lipscomb, and, and we've just come out of talking through ethics for the Hebrew scriptures. And one of the things I was emphasizing for my students is that uh, in, in the Hebrew scriptures, theology and ethics are inseparable, meaning who God is issues directly forward into what God calls God's people to do. You cannot extract those things. 
So another way of saying it is theology, who God is, anthropology, who we are, are intimately connected. If we are made in the image of God, then who God is issues forth not only who we are, but what God has called us to do. So if we believe that God is good, then we can believe that the things to which God has called us are good. That's particularly important to hold on to when forgiveness feels like the thing that might just wreck us and might just undo us. When it feels like the very opposite of a good practice for us. If God is good by nature, and then God has called us to forgive, then we can trust that it is a good thing. Again, even and especially when it does not yet feel like a good thing. We believe that God has forgiven us. I don't know about you, but there are days where, um, when I, I think of, of a line, like something like from Paul, it says, oh, I'm a chief of sinners. Probably most days, I don't really, I don't really identify with that. I'm like, I'm not so bad, you know? <laughs> like, not the greatest, but I'm not so, so bad. Um, and then there are moments where I am uniquely aware of my selfishness, of the difference that there exists between what I say and espouse and, and say I'm passionate about and then what I do about those things. And I realize, that's right, I'm a really, really broken person. Maybe not the worst of all, right? But I am fundamentally broken. And I'm reminded that God is present with, with me in the midst of that brokenness, and God has extended forgiveness to me. As God has extended forgiveness to you. God has been gracious to each of us, both in ways that we are aware and perhaps more so ways that we are not even yet aware. That we have, have been extended incredible, immeasurable grace. So then associated with that, God has extended forgiveness and compassion and grace to us and has asked that we extend that to, uh, to others. We're called to uh, to continue that pattern of receiving and extending forgiveness. There's a reciprocity there. These two points are tied together, both in our, our receiving forgiveness and extending it. And I think it's highlighted well in the, the text in Matthew 18 about the, the parable of the unforgiving servant, which likely we're familiar with, but... There's a servant of a king who uh, is forgiven an uh, enormous debt, enormous debt. And the king grants uh, pardon from that debt. And the servant celebrates and then runs out and, as you all know, uh, refuses to forgive someone who owes the servant a much smaller debt. Now, the fairly obvious sort of point that we could draw from this story is we've been forgiven much, so we need to extend much, right? But another really important piece of that story is that the servant 
represents the king in that transaction. The servant goes out bearing the king's name in his work, in his interactions with other people because he serves the king. Therefore, when he refuses to extend forgiveness, when he refuses to pardon that debt, it reflects immediately back on the king. So we are called as persons made in the image of God, called to serve God, called to reflect God within creation. We are called again, just as we have received enormous forgiveness, to extend that back to others. And in doing so, we reflect back on who God is. Lest we, as servants of the king, claim a narrative to others through our actions that God is not actually that forgiving. And God is not actually that good or gracious. We believe that human beings are made in the image of God. And this means many things. But one of, one of the most important things it means is that we have, as humans, inestimable value and worth. If we are made in the image of the God of all creation, we each uniquely, as individuals, have inestimable value and worth and dignity. And this is important for a lot of reasons, but specifically for our purposes, I want to focus on two pieces of it. One, I have to believe that you, Helen, have incredible dignity and value and worth in order for me to think that it's even worthwhile to extend forgiveness to you. Because if I don't see you as having any worth, then you better believe I'm not extending that, that to you. It might not even be that I'm going to say, no, I'm not giving that to her. I'm going to withhold that. It might just be, I don't even think, I don't even think about it. I don't even entertain the idea because you mean so little to me. But when I realize that Helen is an image bearer of God, I think a little bit differently about her. When I realize that God is reflected in who she is, forgiveness looks a little bit different. My call to extend forgiveness looks a lot different, actually. And also, I have to believe that I bear the image of God, and therefore I have inestimable valuable, inestimable value, why can't I say that? Inestimable value and worth and dignity. And therefore I am worthy of receiving forgiveness. Because for some of us, extending forgiveness might not be that difficult at times. Receiving it might be fundamentally more difficult. And I have to believe that if indeed I am made in the image of God, then I have incredible value and I am worth receiving forgiveness and grace and compassion because God has says, said that I am. It also means that when I have been hurt and when I have been wronged, that it matters. Because if I don't believe that I'm made in the image of God and therefore have incredible value, then I could very uh, too easily and all too quickly say, it's okay, I, I, you know, it doesn't really matter, I was not actually that hurt. 
But if I believe that I have value, then I know it is okay and good to say, I was wounded. Those words were sharp. They cut me. The decisions you made that impacted me caused great disaster in my life. I can name that. And I should, because again, I have value. And so my wounds matter. So knowing that we are made in the image of God and have incredible value and worth and dignity impacts, again, how we both receive forgiveness, how we accept it, and how we extend it to, to others. And there may be times, depending on how deep the wounding is, that, that I am so full of hate and anger and frustration and venom because of what someone's done to me, that all that I can cling to is the fact that that person bears the image of God. Because my experience of that person tells me otherwise. But if I believe that that doesn't go away, and that, that no matter what that person has done, as egregious as the harm may be, that they don't cease to bear that value because they are, are made in God's image. Um, one of my sort of heroes in the faith is a woman named Dorothy Day, and she spent a lot of time serving uh, serving persons who were addicted to various substances and often homeless. And she said, uh, the drunkard is Jesus in his most hideous disguise. And in order to be able to serve people who were shouting things at her, who did not smell great, who not, were not necessarily expressing any sort of appreciation for what she is doing for them, she had to keep in mind, this is Jesus in a disguise. In a similar way, I think we have to keep in mind, as best as we are able, this person bears the image of God. And that doesn't pretend that the hurt didn't happen, that that person did not harm you deeply and wound you deeply. It just means that they can still bear that image, and you do too. And that will inform, again, the ways we think about ourselves and others. We believe that God is relational. So one of the basic tenets of the Christian faith is this idea that God exists as Trinity. That God is a community of three persons who exist together in relationship. God is a relationship. God is relational. As we just spoke about in a minute before, we are made in the image of God. Therefore, we are also fundamentally relational beings. We cannot escape that. It is to the core who we are because God exists in relationship and has invited us into the relationship in which God enjoys. Therefore, we cannot live fully as human beings if we are not in relationship with others. We simply cannot live fully into who we are made to be and what we are made to do outside of the context of relationship. Um, this is why 
when Tom Hanks is cast away on an island, uh, he is able to find shelter and he is able to find uh, some food and some basic clothing, right? The basic things you might think you need for survival. And yet he still ends up befriending a bloodstained volleyball named Wilson because he's so desperate for some form of engagement and relationship. Even though he's got a pretty nice little setup on his island there by himself, right? He learns how to fish, he learns how to collect rainwater, he salvages things from the, the or FedEx boxes that wash up on the, the seashore, right? Like he, by the way, this is movie Castaway. I hope you all are <laughs> familiar with the movie. Uh, he figures it out, right? He's doing okay, much better than I would. I would die in the first 30 minutes. I'm, I'm just confident of that. Uh, he's doing okay, and yet he still doesn't have relationship, and therefore he is surviving, but, but almost barely, because he so desperately needs engagement and contact and relationship. It is as fundamental to his being human as is the water that he's collecting and the food that he is partaking of. We are relational beings, just as God is a, is a relationship. God exists in relationship. So again, we cannot live fully as humans unless we live in relationship. Now for some of us, that sounds terrible, right? For various reasons. For some of us, it might be uh, we prefer time alone. I am an introvert to the core. So if you locked me in a library for three weeks by myself, that would be the best thing you could do for me. Like put me in a corner with books, it's quiet, I'm good. My husband is incredibly outgoing and is energized by a lot of people. Uh, so for some of us it might be, you know, I, I really need some time with, that's okay. But we still need some form of relationship, right? For some of us, the idea of, of our needing to be relational sounds terrifying because our deepest wounds have come in the context of relationship. And that's probably true for most of us, right? The wound hurts and the wound uh, is so deep within us because it occurred in relationship. And often because it occurred by someone we thought we could trust or someone we should have been able to trust or someone who was charged to care for us and did not do so and actually became the greatest source of our deepest wounds. So to try to think about being in a relationship sounds pretty awful. Our response then many times is to isolate and that can look different depending on our personalities. For some of us, Isolating because of our pain means we literally try to be by ourselves. As much time alone and away as we possibly can to limit our exposure to potential hurt. For some of us, it means we are around people all the time. We might even be really outgoing. We might even be the life of the party. But you better believe that we are going to retain most of ourselves and keep it really, really private and never let anybody actually see who we truly are because we are so afraid of being hurt again. Therefore, we remain isolated within ourselves even when we're surrounded by other people. And either form is destructive. It might serve us well for a time. It might be what we need 
for that first level of sort of recovery to pull away and to be quiet and alone for a little bit. But if that becomes our dominant form of being, if that becomes the ways that we, we seek to then live from that point forward, it will destroy us. Because once again, we are relational. We absolutely need relationships just as much as we need food and water and breath. There is no other option because we're made in the image of God and God is relational. We believe that God cares about our hurt. Um, one of the primary metaphors that we find to help get at um, who, is, who is God? What is this thing we mean when we talk about the divine? What does that even mean? One of the primary metaphors that we have for that within scripture is this image of God as a really good parent. So God is a father or a mother who knows how to care for us really well. Now, for some of us, we hear that and pull back a little bit because actually our parents were the greatest source of our wounding. And so there might be some wrestling we do with that. But the image of God that we see in Scripture through this metaphor is God as a really good parent, again, who knows how to care for God's children really well like a good father or a good mother would. And a good parent cares about the hurts of his or her children. Good parents tend to the wounds of their children. They know, they are, they are in tune with their children and know when something is off. I was amazed at how quickly our daughter is almost five months now and she's our first child. I was amazed how quickly I could begin to discern her cries, to know when is she just being fussy, and uh, when might she be hungry, and when is she experiencing pain? And I might not have always been able to do something about it, right? But at least I knew, and it, you better believe that I felt compassion for that sweet little girl. I trust that the way that I respond to my daughter even in five short months of her life, is only a small glimpse of the way that God responds to us when we are hurt. That God sees our hurt, God can distinguish our cries like a mother does for her little baby. God hears our cries and cares. We have to believe that. Or otherwise, again, working through this process of forgiveness just doesn't work. And it just doesn't feel worth it. Because it feels more like God giving a slapping a band-aid on it and saying, all right, go through the process of forgiveness so you can get over it. Dust yourself off, you're good, keep going. But for the ways that we've been wounded really, really deeply, that's not going to work. That approach doesn't work. What we need is to image God as a really good father or a really good mother who scoops us up and says, I know, my child, I see your hurt. Come here and allow me to tend to you. And through that lens, we can see then God calling us to forgiveness is part of God's care extended to us. It is not 
uh, a, an abstract command that we just follow blindly or we do it simply to, to try to please God or, or check something off a list. We do it because a really good parent has said, I care for you and I want to see you healed. I want to see you well. And this is the means whereby you can experience that. We believe that Jesus shows us what it means to be fully and truly human. Of all the ways that God could have brought this whole process of redeeming creation uh, to its climax, of all the options God could have, could have had, God chose to take on human flesh and move into our world and move into our neighborhoods and experience life in an embodied way just like you and I do. Now, that tells us a lot of things. I think it tells us that God really cares about us, to say the least. I think it means that God dignifies our human experience. God does not belittle our human experience, but dignifies it. And then, if Jesus is our best example of what it means to be fully and truly human, then we can trust that the example Jesus has given us for forgiveness is one worth modeling our lives after. Because even in his darkest moment, Jesus is articulating forgiveness and extending forgiveness to those who are beating him and mocking him and torturing him. Even in that very moment, Jesus is saying, God, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. There's something in that example that we are meant to follow. I think we are meant to pattern our lives after Christ in every way. But again, for our purpose particularly, I think it's important to keep in mind that this is something, again, that God through the person of Jesus, has done, has practiced, has accomplished, even in the gravest of circumstances, even in the most deep form of wounding, physical, emotional, spiritual, and so forth. And that is a pattern and a model for us to, to follow. And then associated with that, we know that Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. Uh, if you are experiencing some form of hurt, whatever it may be, whatever, whatever form of difficulty you might be facing, whether it's infertility or divorce or betrayal or a loss of job or a loved one who has cancer, whatever it may be, we know what it's like when someone is with us and say, says, me too. I've been there too. I've walked that road. There's something even in just those, those hearing those words, me too. Um, I'm part of a, of a mom's group for women who, had, who delivered at the birthing center where I delivered. And I can't tell you how helpful it is just to hear when I say, I'm experiencing this. And moms go, yeah, me too. Okay. 
They didn't offer me a stinking solution, right? Like you're just still <laughs> dealing with whatever's going on. Uh, sometimes they're helpful solutions, but most of it's just, yeah, me too. Yes, at four months they go through a sleep regression and for three weeks they're up every 30 minutes. Yep. And I know, okay, these parents survived, like we're, we're gonna make it, right? Just hearing those words, me too, is incredibly helpful. I think Jesus can offer us that. In, in knowing that Jesus is God with human flesh on, entering into our, our deepest pains, our deepest uh, experience of what it means to be human, then we can trust that God knows what it is to suffer. In fact, <clears throat> the word compassion literally means suffering with. God enters into our suffering and suffers with us. We are not alone in it. So not only do we trust that Christ is present with us in our suffering, whatever it may be, but that Christ has suffered too. That tells us something about who God is, who this God is that we, that we love, that we serve, and whose image we're made. And it also tells us something about us and how valuable God finds us as image bearers, that God would enter into our suffering and join us in that, in that space. We believe that in his resurrection that Jesus defeated the powers of death and darkness and evil. Now, those powers continue to rear their ugly heads until the day where the kingdom comes in its fullness. And so we continue to see the effects of that. But we believe that Christ has defeated death by taking it head on and meeting it fully and meeting it with life, overcoming death with life. And therefore, we know that whatever hurt we are facing is not the end of the story. And we have to know that. We have to know that whatever wounding that we are experiencing is not the end of the story. It will not be the end of our story, and it's certainly not the ending of God's story. We believe that the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives. The Spirit is a source of comfort for us. The Spirit is an advocate for us. And the Spirit also empowers us. God does not call us to do something like forgiveness and then not empower us to do so. We know of times where God has called us to do something and it is very clear to us that it is not in our own ability to, to be doing whatever it is that we're doing, right? That you can almost sense on your fingertips the Holy Spirit working through you. There is something more at work than just your own power. You can sense God present within you, empowering you to do what God has called you to do. And sometimes that can be in the most uh, benign and ordinary of circumstances. And sometimes it can be in uh, very significant and perhaps dramatic ways. And certainly in the process of forgiveness, certainly in the journey of forgiveness, I trust that the Spirit is empowering us to actually do what God's calling us to do.
finally, we believe that God is actively at work to redeem all of creation. God has not left us on our own. God has not said, well, that's a mess, figure it out. God has entered into the mess of our story and has said, I will redeem all things. And so we know that God is at work in our lives. We know that God is at work in the world. And we also know that God has extended an invitation to us to live into that reality now. So if we know that the end of the story is that all things will be redeemed and all things will be as they are meant to be, if we know that's the end, we can live now as if that is, is our truest reality. I have to believe that or I will not be able to extend forgiveness because I believe if I don't know the end of the story, then you better believe I'm going to hold on to this hurt and I'm not extending forgiveness to you because I want to write this story and I want to make sure it turns out the way I want it. And if I extend forgiveness to you, there's a chance that you might harm me again. Or there's a chance that you won't ever apologize to me and it won't turn out the way that I want to. And I really want to control the ending of that story. But if I trust that God is the one writing the narrative and that God has said, in the end, all things will be redeemed, all things will be as they are meant to be, then I can rest into that. And the decisions I make today, right now, can live into what God has said is coming. Again, that is the end of the story. And the glimpses that we get of what that will be like in Scripture include concepts such as God literally wiping tears from our eyes and saying, there will be no more sorrow. They will no longer hurt or destroy on my holy mountain. Relationships will be restored. These are glimpses of what that reality will be, and therefore, we can live into that now. I hope that as we continue to talk about forgiveness over the next several weeks, that some of these concepts, most if not all of which you already are familiar with, will come to mind. And almost like um, railings on a path that's pretty treacherous, that they can be a guide for us. That we can wrap our hands around and go, okay, I can get my footing on this. I don't know what this is gonna look like, and this might suck. This might be really hurtful, but I can wrap my hands around this and know this is true. This is who God is. This is who I am. This is who God has said others are. And we can continue to move forward in this messy and beautiful and kingdom practice of forgiveness. Let's pray. <laughs> Let's pray. For all that we have just named and explored and thought about, we give you thanks, O oh God. We are grateful that you are good. You've called us to good things. You've promised to empower us to do that which you have called us to. 
You enter into the midst of our suffering. You care. You're like a really good parent. And for all of that, we are grateful. In the name of God the Creator, God the Savior, and God the Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks all for being here. Good to see you. (laughs) We balance. Thank you.